the purpose of this six-part sermon series on evangelism is threefold. For starters, we want you to identify your evangelistic style. Secondly, we want you to appreciate the evangelistic style of others. And third and finally, we want you to implement your unique evangelistic style in your everyday life. By now, there are more than a few of you that could describe the six evangelistic styles of Lee Strobel. He says that there is the direct style. This is the person who is convinced that everybody needs to hear the good news of the gospel. So this person has no problem going up to anyone to describe the claims of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is Peter and John as they stood before the Sanhedrin. There's also the intellectual style. This person attempts to capture the mind in pursuit of the heart. So this individual incorporates logic and reason and apologetics. It's Paul on Mars Hill. The testimonial style describes the person who incorporates his or her testimony in the gospel presentation. It's the man born blind of John chapter 9. This much I know. I was blind, but now I see. And if God can do that to me, I'm confident he can do it to you as well. There's also the invitational style. It's best personified by the Samaritan woman who said, come see a man who told me everything I've ever done. Could he be the Christ? It's simply an invitation to invite others to consider the claims of the Lord Jesus Christ upon their life. Then there's the relational style. This is the person who wants to take a good friend to our best friend named Jesus. Because of the years of friendship, you have stockpiled the right to be heard in their lives. And so you do everything you possibly can to plop your friend at the feet of Christ. Today we come to the sixth and final style. It's the servant style. This describes the individual who wants to show Christ even before we speak Christ. In the story that confronts us this morning, we will discover who we serve, how we serve, and why we serve in Jesus' name. I invite you to take your Bible, draw your sword, turn to Luke chapter 10. I want to read in your hearing verses 25 to 37. Once you found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. I'll begin at Luke chapter 10, verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw the man, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, 
came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins, gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God, you may be seated. It was John MacArthur who said, every parable is a salvation story. It is a portrait of redemption. Prior to Jesus giving this portrait of redemption that we call the Good Samaritan story, Jesus was approached by a hotshot lawyer. He asked the Messiah a question. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now initially when you hear that question, you realize that there are a few things that are downright offensive about that question. For starters, the expert lawyer just simply called Jesus teacher. Friend, don't ever demote Jesus like that. Jesus is so much more than teacher. He is the God-man. He is fully God and fully human. He is God wrapped in flesh. He stepped out of heaven and stepped into earth. Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah. This expert lawyer demoted him, simply called him teacher. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Do you hear the emphasis? The expert lawyer thought that eternal life was found and bound in something that he must do. Oh, but friend, your salvation is much more about Jesus than it is about you. It is Jesus who initiates your salvation, who sustains your salvation, who accomplishes your salvation, who keeps your salvation. It is all about Jesus and not as much about you. The expert said, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Embedded in that question is a performance-driven activity. What must I do? I've got to do something to earn this salvation, to merit this eternal life. But my friend, the difference between Christianity and every other world religion is the difference between two words, do, done. Every other world religion tells you what you must do to inherit eternal life. It is only Christianity that tells you what's been done for you at Calvary's cross in Christ so that you who are dead may be alive in the Lord. In this question, there are several flaws. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Ironically, this is the same question that will be asked later in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 18, by the rich young ruler. But in our story, it is a hotshot lawyer who asked this question of Jesus. Now, when I say a lawyer, I do not mean a criminal defense attorney. This man did not have his picture plastered on every billboard around town simply saying, call me Israel, let me be your attorney. 
This lawyer is not a criminal defense attorney. To say he's a lawyer is to say he's an expert in the Mosaic Covenant. He knows the Old Testament law frontwards and backwards, inside and out. I question this man's motives, don't you? Luke tells us that he stood up to put Jesus to the test. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Ironically, Jesus takes the law. You're right back to the law. What is written in the law, Jesus says. How do you read it? His response is superb. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. This man answered correctly. In fact, on this pop quiz, he got an A+. You can't get any better than this response. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus says the very same response when asked the question, what is the greatest commandment? He follows it up by saying, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. The one found in Deuteronomy 6, the second found in Leviticus chapter 19. In Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the other is likened unto it in Leviticus chapter 19. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said to the lawyer, do this and you'll live. In other words, you have demonstrated cognitive mastery of the Scripture. You know precisely what it takes to receive or inherit eternal life. You do this and you'll live. So what was so good about this man's answer? Well, simply stated, what this man knows is that in order to receive eternal life, you've got to do two things. You've got to love God perfectly, and you've got to love your neighbor passionately. You love God perfectly, and you love your neighbor passionately, you will receive eternal life. The instruction sounds simple. The execution of it is downright daunting. If you have any level of self-awareness in this moment you've got to be thinking I can't do that I can't love God perfectly every day and twice on Sunday I cannot love my neighbor passionately there's sometimes I do it well other times I fall flat on my face can I just be transparent with you this morning there are far too many times when I disobey God routinely and I disappoint people regularly. There are some moments when I love God well, some moments when I love neighbor passionately, but more times than not, I flutter, fall, and fail. But the requirement is, in order to receive eternal life, you've got to love God perfectly. You've got to love neighbor passionately. Jesus said, if you can do this, you'll live. If you can do this perfectly, you will receive eternal life. Now you expect the lawyer to come to the same conclusion that you've just come to. I can't do this perfectly. But this man is so brash. This man is so arrogant. He does have a rebuttal, but it's not what you think he's going to say. You think he's going to say, but master, I cannot do those things. He says, but who is my neighbor? By that follow-up question, what he is implying is, Jesus, 
I can do the first part perfectly. I can love God perfectly. I do that every day. I do it consistently. I do it uh, exhaustively. I love God perfectly, but the love of neighbor passionately. Now, I need some explanation on that. Jesus, I need for you to help draw the lines. I need for you to help clarify who is my neighbor, who is deserving of my passionate love, and who is not deserving of my passionate love. Do you hear the question? Do you hear the arrogance that predates the question? He actually thinks he can love God perfectly in and of himself. And the only question he has is not How do I love my neighbor, but who is the neighbor that I've got to be neighborly towards? In other words, um, this man was trying to clarify his self-righteousness. And Jesus was attempting to crush this man's self-righteousness. This man was trying to clearly draw the lines. Jesus was intentionally blurring the lines. Oh, this man was trying to minimize his obedience. Jesus was trying to maximize his obedience. This man was trying to be secure in his religious activity, but Jesus was hoping this man would be desperate for God's salvation. He asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? And Jesus responded with one of those off-the-cuff, well-spun stories we call a parable. A certain man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. The setting of this fictitious story is real. There was a road that went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. It was about a 17-mile road. When Jesus sets the stage, every person in the crowd can visualize the scene. They see the twists and the turns, the drops and the rocks. This was a treacherous road. Yes, they would have to travel down because Jerusalem was located some 2,500 feet above sea level. Jericho was located some 800 feet below sea level. So literally when Jesus said a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, they could visualize, yes, he had to go down that winding, turning gravel road. And along the way, there were large rocks, commonplace for thieves and robbers. This was a dangerous road to travel. Most people did not travel it alone. They would travel in groups because what you might think could happen did happen to this certain man. A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell into the hands of of robbers. They beat him, stripped him, robbed him, left him half dead. As he made his way down the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, punks came from around the bend. This man tried to overpower them. This man tried to defend himself, but this man was overpowered by the number of these robbers. They beat him to a pulp. They stripped him of all of his clothes, took away all of his money, left him lying in a pool of his own blood along the gravel road. He was half dead 
And they concluded he'll just bleed out. Of course, they didn't really care about him because they were thieves. They were robbers. Soon after that happened, Jesus said, a Jewish priest came by. Now, we assume that the man who fell into the hand of robbers is a Jewish man. That's a safe assumption because he's traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. And Jesus said that a Jewish priest came down that same road. You think to yourself, well, that's good news for that poor man because if anybody's going to stop and help a man in need, it's a pastor, right? I mean, a preacher is going to come down and be very kind, very benevolent, very compassionate. This Jewish priest, certainly he'll stop. But Jesus said that he saw the man in need. He crossed the street and passed by on the other side. This man did not demonstrate much love for God. He didn't demonstrate much love for neighbor either. He saw the man in need, but he did not help. He saw the man in need, but he passed by on the other side. Many have asked the question, why did this Jewish priest not stop and help? Any answer we can give is speculation. It's always dangerous to speculate about scripture, but it doesn't stop people from doing it anyway. So let's just speculate on why potentially this preacher, pastor, did not stop. Some have said it's because he did not want to defile himself. From his vantage point, the man looked dead. And if he touched a corpse, the priest would be declared unclean. He'd have to go through a lengthy religious ritual to be declared clean again. He's got far too much to do. His day is stock full. He, it, it's packed full. So he does not stop because he does not want to be defiled. This man is already dead, clearly. From his vantage point, he looked deceased. Ozef said, well, the reason he didn't stop was not so much because he didn't want to be defiled. It was for self-preservation. He thought to himself, this just happened. And if I stop, if I bend over, if I try to help this man, the punks that jumped him just might jump me. And so out of personal safety, he said, I can't stop. I got to keep moving. Others have said, maybe it's just because he's too busy. That's why he doesn't stop. For you've seen a busy preacher before. You know a busy pastor. Always got something to do. Always got some place to be. Got to go to the hospital. Got to make this visit. Got to attend this meeting. Got to schedule that event. Always going and going. Here, there, and everywhere. And maybe this priest was just far too busy. Because even people in the first century had busy schedules. Regardless, we know that the priest saw the man and he refused to stop. Jesus said no sooner had that man gone off the scene, a Levite came along that way. A Levite is a descendant of Levi. A Levite was an assistant to the office of the priesthood. More than one person has compared a Levite to a present-day deacon. So let me tell you, if a preacher ain't going to stop, surely a deacon will. I mean, we got some good deeks. We got some deacons who really deek well. And so if our deacons, if they came upon a need, if they crossed a man who was lying there in his, in his own blood on the gravel road, surely they would stop. But the Levite did the same thing as the priest. He saw the man, demonstrated no love for God, no love for his neighbor, he crossed the street and passed by on the other side. Why? I can only assume he's got the same excuses that the priest had. He did not want to be defiled. It was for self-preservation, his own personal safety. Or maybe 
He was just too busy, in a hurry, just living life. He passed by. It's at this point of the story that the expert lawyer thinks to himself, I'm off the hook. I'm off the hook. I mean, I'm trying to clearly define my neighbor. And for this Jewish man, if this Jewish man is not the neighbor of a Jewish priest, and if he's not the neighbor of a Jewish Levite, surely he's not my neighbor either. So if Jesus is going to carve out a picture of what my neighbor looks like, it must be somebody who's another expert lawyer. It must be somebody who looks like me, walks like me, talks like me, acts like me, boasts like me, thinks like me, vacations like me. It must be somebody just like me. That must be my neighbor. But the lawyer's intuitive. The lawyer quickly comes to this conclusion, but wait a minute. If that Jewish man is not the neighbor to a Jewish priest and a Jewish Levite, who is that man's neighbor? I mean, the reason Jesus is telling the story is because the expert lawyer asked the question, who is my neighbor? Please clarify the identity of my neighbor. If this Jewish man's neighbor is not a priest and not a Levite, not a preacher or a deacon, then who is this man's neighbor? It's at this point in the story that Jesus blows the Gucci sandals right off the feet of the lawyer. But a Samaritan came passing by. But a Samaritan came passing by? The lawyer thought to himself, well, if the Jewish priest and the Jewish Levite aren't going to stop, I promise you that Samaritan is not going to stop. But Jesus said the Samaritan saw the man took pity on him, bandaged his wounds, put him on his own beast of burden, took him into an inn in the local town, took care of him all night long, gave the innkeeper two silver coins, and said, let this cover any expense you may have until I return, and if you have a greater expense, you know I'm good for it when I come back through. When Jesus told the rest of that story, you could have heard a pin drop. I mean, that Jewish lawyer, his eyes were popping, his jaw was dropping. A Samaritan? Jesus just makes the hero of this story a Samaritan? Many of you realize that Jews and Samaritans hated each other. It dated back some 700 years before the coming of Christ. In the year 722 B.C., the Assyrian army invaded the northern kingdom of Israel. They deported many of the best, strongest Israelite men. The Assyrian men stayed in the Holy Land. They married Israelite women. The children that were produced, history calls Samaritans. They had in their upbringing a flair of Judaism, but a whole lot of Assyrian paganism. So for centuries... Jews were taught to hate Samaritans. Samaritans were taught to hate Jews. To a devout Jew, a Samaritan was a second-rate citizen. You don't give them the time of day. You don't have to stop for them. You go out of your way to avoid any Samaritan or any Samaritan soil. This animosity was taught. This animosity, this hatred was almost justified in their minds. It's all because of my upbringing, the way I was taught. I was taught to hate 
Samaritans, a devout Jew would tell you. In fact, in the days of Nehemiah, he would not allow Samaritans to assist in the rebuilding of the wall around the sacred city of Jerusalem following the Babylonian captivity. That's how much hatred there was. That even Nehemiah, the great Nehemiah, he would not permit Samaritans to help in the rebuilding, refortification of the sacred city. The Samaritans got so upset, they were huffing and puffing, so they said, we'll just go to Mount Gerizim. And there they built a temple to their version of their God. So much hatred, so much animosity. And in this story, Jesus makes a Samaritan a hero. It's really hard for us to feel the weight of this twist in Jesus' story. We hear it so frequently. We know the story of the Good Samaritan. And, and it's really hard for us to feel the, the burden, to feel the weight, to feel the shock of the twist of this story that a Samaritan comes by and a Samaritan acts like a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers. How do you explain this so we can begin to understand it? Well, I guess if we were a church during the days of colonial America in the 1770s, and if I was your preacher and we were talking about this very story, I guess I would illustrate it by comparing it to uh, uh, an occasion when perhaps a, a British redcoat came to the assistance of an American colonist. Or if you and I were living in the days of the Civil War and I was preaching this sermon to you in the days of the 1860s, I might compare it to a Union officer coming to help a Confederate soldier from Alabama. If you and I were living during the days of the 1960s, during the Civil Rights Movement when it was at its height, I guess I might compare it to a white man who comes to help a black man living in downtown Birmingham. But today, how would I compare this story? Maybe I could describe it that a member of the LGBTQ community comes to the aid and the assistance of a conservative Christian. In any of those scenarios, if you think to yourself, yeah, that would never happen, now you're beginning to feel the weight of the twist in this story. It's only when you get to the point where you say, what Jesus described could never happen. When you get to that point where you kind of visualize a scenario when two different types of people, people that you perceive to be enemies, and one comes to the aid and the assistance of the other, and you think to yourself, yeah, that would never happen. Not in my world, not in my lifetime. It's only then you begin to feel the heaviness of this story. Jesus makes a Samaritan a hero, and then turning to the Jewish hotshot lawyer, he said, now which of these three men acted as a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The lawyer couldn't even say the word Samaritan. He had so much hatred, he couldn't even utter the word Samaritan. He said, I suppose the one who had mercy on him. And then Jesus said, go and do likewise. In this story, we are taught who we serve 
how we serve, and why we serve. Who do we serve? Who is our neighbor? According to this story, your neighbor has nothing to do necessarily with only the people who live up the street, down the street, and across the street. Your neighbor is so much more, according to this story, than the boundaries we set in place for race and ethnicity and geography. The reality from this story is that your neighbor is anyone. Your neighbor is even your Samaritan. Your neighbor is is the last person on the planet that, that you would want to help. I'm convinced that everybody has Samaritans. Now, you may sit there this morning and you think to yourself, but I do not have any Samaritans in my life. I am holier than thou. I just love everyone. Yeah, liar, liar, pants on fire. All of us have Samaritans. All of us have people we look down upon. And sometimes we look down upon people and we justify it. It's just the way we were taught. We were taught to mistrust that group of people. We were taught from personal experience, I cannot trust that category of people. And we justify it in our mind. We were brought up this way. We were, it was kind of, it's kind of embedded in us that we just don't like fill in the blank. All of us have Samaritans. We have Samaritans by our upbringing. We have Samaritans by the way we've been taught. We have Samaritans by our own experience. The people that have hurt us and harmed us, those are the last people on the planet we would ever want to help. Who do we serve? Anybody. Anybody who has a need, we're in a position to meet. That's your neighbor. Your neighbor's anyone who has a need, you're in a position to meet. Jesus tells the story to answer the question, who is my neighbor? And the short answer is anybody. Anybody classifies as your neighbor. Why? Because everybody is made in the Imago Dei, the very image of God. Every person bears upon themselves the very intrinsic value that God has stamped upon them. Every person made in the image of God. So your neighbor's anybody. Even your Samaritan. Even your enemy. And I'll be the first to admit, it is far easier to come to the help of a friend versus a foe. It is easier to help someone who is like you. It is so easy to help someone who likes you. It is so easy to help someone who values what you value, thinks how you think, looks at the world the same way you look at the world. It is easy to minister and serve a friend. It is difficult to serve a foe, to serve your Samaritan, to serve somebody that you just don't like and you can justify the reason why you don't like him, her, or them. Jesus gives this story to answer the question, who do we serve? Short answer, anybody. Anybody who has a need, we're in a position to meet. Secondly, how do we serve? 
Did you notice the lavish love this Samaritan threw upon this Jewish man that was thrown into the hands of robbers? Did you catch the compassion? It's overwhelming. It's astounding. I mean, it is off the charts how compassionate this service is towards this Jewish man. I mean, this Samaritan, he, he serves lavishly. He serves ferociously. For starters, he saw the man and took pity on him. If the priest thought this man was dead, so did the Samaritan. And even though the Samaritan might have thought this man was dead, he still went over and took pity on him. He got his hands dirty. Presumably, he ripped strips of linen from his own garments and bandaged the wounds in the hopes of stopping the bleeding of this man. He took the resources off of his donkey, the oil and the wine. He poured oil and wine on the open sores, the oil to soothe, the wine to disinfect. He placed this mangled mass of flesh called a Jewish man. He placed him on his own beast of burden. You can assume, rightly so, that the Samaritan was riding down the road that goes from Jerusalem to Jericho. And when he saw the man, he put the man's needs in front of his own needs. He got off of his donkey. He walked beside it so that the man could be as comfortable as possible as he rode the rest of the way into town. When he got into town, he checked in to the local inn, took care of the man's needs all night long. The next morning, he gave the innkeeper two silver coins. I know, you're thinking two nickels, right? Maybe two dimes, perhaps a couple of quarters. No, literally the text reads, he gave two denarii, a denarius. It's an honest day's pay for an honest day's work. This man gave two days' worth of work to the innkeeper. It was Daryl Bach in his commentary on the Gospel of Luke who said that to take care of a person's needs in a local inn like this would have cost approximately one-twelfth of a denarius a day. So for the Samaritan to give two denarii means that he is giving enough that's equivalent to 24 days of expenses. I mean, that's more than three weeks, almost four weeks. It's nearly a month, 24 days to take care of all the needs of this man. And then he gives a promise to the innkeeper that if you incur a greater expense, I'm good for it. You just let me know what it is, and when I come back through town, I'll pay it. When I begin to hear that, I ask the question, who loves like that? I mean, who serves like that? I mean, that lavishly, that ferociously, that, that extravagantly, who among us serves like that? The reality is, uh, I only love myself that much. And you probably only love yourself that much. Do you make it your habit to go out of your way to look for people in need, and specifically people in need who would qualify as your enemy? 
And then once you find your enemy who's in need, then you meet that need by taking care of that person's mortgage for the month and groceries for the month and car bill for the month and utilities for the month. And then with the promise that, that, that after this month is over, if you still have a need, then I'm good to meet it. You just let me know. Who among us serves like that? Who loves like that? We only do that for ourselves. I pay my own mortgage and my own groceries and my own utilities and my own car payment. I mean, you do that as well. I do that as well. We love ourselves that much. We may love our grown children that much if they get in a bind and we help them out one month or another month. We may have a friend that we will occasionally help by, you know, paying for their meal or maybe some groceries or perhaps a utility bill to Alabama Power. But that's the exception, not the norm, right? Most of us don't love like this. If this story is given to us, not only to tell us who to serve, anybody, it also tells us how we serve. And we are to serve lavishly. We are to serve more ferociously than we ever imagined when we walked into this congregation sanctuary today. I mean, Jesus is telling us that we, we ought to serve ferociously. The reality is, uh, you and I have neutered this story. We've really neutered it. We say that anybody's a good Samaritan. What justifies a good Samaritan? We call somebody a good Samaritan if they give a couple of dollars to the homeless guy at the end of the exit ramp. We call somebody a good Samaritan if they volunteer for the local soup kitchen or they write a $100 check to Red Cross. Or maybe they, they pay for the meal of the family in the car behind us through the drive through at Whataburger. Or maybe somebody who mows somebody else's grass. Or maybe somebody who moves a piece of furniture from point A to point B. And we say, wow, you're really a good Samaritan. Now, friend, don't misunderstand me. It's a good thing to do good things for people. But don't neuter this story. The story that Jesus tells us. He tells us who we serve. He tells us how we serve. And the way we are called to serve is far more lavish and far more ferocious than we had ever imagined. This story also tells us why we serve. The answer is embedded in the text. It's implicit. It's not explicit. But I do think it's there. Why do we serve so lavishly? Why do we serve so ferociously? Why would we serve anybody, including a Samaritan in our life, including our enemies? Why would we do that? Remember, this story is tied to salvation, right? The expert lawyer asked the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This story is tied to our understanding of eternal life. It is tied to our understanding of salvation. If I'm correct, that from this story, from the answer of the expert lawyer, Jesus is telling him, he's telling us, that we are to love God perfectly and we are to love neighbor passionately. 
you and I should come to the conclusion, I can't do that. I can't do it well. I can't do it consistently. Listen, my love for God is inconsistent at best. My love for neighbor is sporadic at best. Sometimes I really love God on Sunday mornings in front of you. Sometimes I really serve my neighbor when other people are watching. But what about when nobody's watching? How consistent are you? How sporadic are you in your love for God and love for neighbor? You've got to come to the same conclusion. I'm not the only wretch in the crowd. That would have been a great place for a hearty amen. All of us, despicable, wretches, sinners in the sight of God. We can't love God perfectly. We can't love neighbor passionately. God, we need you to help us. And God did. God sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus stepped out of heaven to step into earth so that God's enemies may become friends of God. One step further so that friends of God may be adopted into God's family. God demonstrated massive mercy towards us. Our salvation is based upon what God has done in Jesus Christ, and God demonstrated massive mercy in saving us. And I contend there is a direct correlation between your understanding of the amount of massive mercy needed to save you to the amount of mercy that you show towards other people. If you understand the massive mercy that was required for your salvation required the death of the God-man. It wasn't a second-rate citizen of heaven. It wasn't an angel that came to give you salvation. It was God in the flesh. It was the second person of the Trinity. If you understand that it was required for the perfect God-man to come to earth and die on the cross for your sins, that that massive mercy was needed to forgive all of your sins, past, present, and future. If you understand that, then you will in turn be merciful towards other people. There's a direct correlation to your understanding of mercy from God and your understanding of mercy towards other people. Let me be very clear. We are called to be merciful, not for salvation, but from salvation. We are not merciful to obtain salvation. We are merciful because we have inherited or received salvation. So our mercy is not for salvation, it is from salvation. And mercy shown to you must be mercy shown through you. I was really wanting a hearty amen because it took me a while to craft that statement. Mercy shown to you must be mercy shown through you. If God has been merciful to you, then you in turn have to be merciful unto others. Even if the others are your Samaritans. Even if the others are foes and enemies. This story is tied to salvation. Remember what John MacArthur said, every parable is a salvation story. Every parable is a portrait of redemption. This is a portrait of redemption. This rich young ruler, this this hotshot lawyer, excuse me, he should have come to the conclusion, I can't do this on my own. Jesus, I need your help. 
And Jesus would have given him mercy to show mercy to others. But regardless, he says to this man, go and do likewise. Which one acted neighborly? The man couldn't even say Samaritan, so he said the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. Here's one of my last questions of the day. Did the man go and do likewise? I mean, the hotshot lawyer, he came to pose a question to Jesus. He asked the question, he got the answer, gave some instruction, Jesus said. Go and do likewise. Did the lawyer go and do likewise? The answer, we don't know. We don't know. Luke is a brilliant storyteller. It's at this moment that Luke invites you into the story. Now the statement is not given to the lawyer. Now the statement is given to you. Go and do likewise. Now let me ask you, how will you respond? What will you do? Because the mercy shown to you must be mercy shown through you. This story tells us who we serve. It tells us how we serve. It tells us why we serve. We simply serve because Christ has served us. We come to the end of this six-part evangelistic series, and, and the reality is probably all of us, we at some point, some conversation, some cases, some scenarios, we take this style, and then other times we take that style. Some other times we take some characteristics of a third style. We probably do all of them. But for the person, for the person who is saying, yeah, I'm waiting for the servant style. I'm waiting for the last one. Because pastor has said, servant style, I show Christ even before I speak Christ. And I'm petrified of speaking Christ. So I just want to show him. Friend, if that's you, if you've been waiting for the servant style, do you now know what you just signed up for? I mean, the service that we are to give is the same service that the Samaritan gave to the Jewish man that fell into the hands of robbers. We serve anybody who has a need we're in a position to meet. We serve lavishly, ferociously, and the reason we serve is because God has served us in Christ first. Regardless of what style you have today, I know it could be fluid. It could change from one experience to the other. But all evangelism is one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. And at some point in all these styles, you've got to speak the good name of Jesus you got to go and tell the gospel. The reason is because you got a bad case of can't help it. You can't help but speak about what you've seen, about what you've heard, about what you've experienced. The massive mercy that saved you changed you. So now you've got to go and be merciful to others. My Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine. For thee, all the follies of sin I resign. My gracious Redeemer, my Savior art thou. If ever I've loved you, my Jesus, it's now. 
This morning, if you're here today and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as Savior, Lord, today can be the day of salvation. Like the one that walked through the waters of baptism, you can have the same story that you go from no faith to faith, from death into life. Today can be the day of salvation. If you're here today and you come to the end of this sermon series and you still say, Lord, help me. I I need to be eager in evangelism, but I am so hesitant. Look, the altar's open. You come, you pray. Maybe you're praying for yourself. Maybe you're praying for a son or a daughter. Maybe you're praying for a spouse. Maybe you're praying for an uncle or an aunt. Maybe you're praying for your Samaritans. Maybe you're praying for your friends. Perhaps you're even praying for your foes. You're just praying for somebody. Once you know the altar's open for you to come and to pray. If God's calling you to ministry, now's a great day to make it known to others. Whatever God is asking you to do, won't you follow in obedience unto him? Heavenly Father, we bow before you. Lord, we give you this moment of invitation. Lord, we pray uh, that you will move, that we will respond in obedience. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.